Welcome to Race and Democracy, a podcast on the intersection between race, democracy, public policy, social justice, and citizenship. Today, we have the pleasure of speaking to Jonathan Eig, who is a journalist and is a critically acclaimed best-selling author of four books, including Luckiest Man and Opening Day. He has written for the New York Times, The New Yorker, Esquire, and Washington Post, and is a contributing writer to the Wall Street Journal. He is currently working with Ken Burns to develop a documentary on Muhammad Ali, and his latest book is Ali, A Life, uh, which is really the definitive biography of Muhammad Ali, heavyweight champion of the world, anti-Vietnam war protester, three-time heavyweight champion of the world, and really a symbol of Black political radicalism during the 1960s. And this is a great time to be talking to you, Jonathan, because 2020 has been a year of American racial reckoning. So I wanted to talk to you about Muhammad Ali, the 1960s, race, democracy, but also the present and and some future projects that you're working on as well. Oh, I'd love to talk about all of that. So thank you so much. It's really a pleasure to be with you today. What got you interested in, one, being a journalist, and then the story of Muhammad Ali? I got interested in journalism because I wasn't good at anything else. <laughs> I, uh, as a kid, I just loved writing. I was the, it was the only subject in school that I felt any confidence in. And uh, when I discovered that I could work for my junior high newspaper and even my local paper at age 16, I just loved it. I was a shy kid, so I loved being able to pick up a notebook and go interview people who normally I'd be scared of. Um, so that was a huge thrill for me. And it's, I'm still basically doing the same thing that I started doing at 16 for my school paper. I'm picking up my notebook and going and interviewing people who normally I would have no business talking to and writing about what I learn and, and following my curiosity. And following the curiosity has just um, taken me on an incredible journey all the way to you know writing the biography of Muhammad Ali, who I idolized as a kid. You know, I'm I grew up in the suburbs of New York. I uh, was born in 64. So by the time I'm 10, Ali is fighting George Foreman in Zaire. And I'm not really aware of the racial, the political, the religious struggle involved in all of this. I'm just thrilled by watching this incredible fighter and this incredible personality. And um, 40 something years later, to be able to write his biography. Um, was just the greatest experience I, I could have had. And I, you know, it's a, it's a huge honor and responsibility too. Now in the biography, you pull no punches about talking about Ali's life, um, his personal life, his politics, his connection to the nation of Islam, very complicated personal life with uh, not only just several marriages, but just different people within his life, different children. And suddenly, and somehow, he's still this very protean figure, even though there are real inconsistencies in Ali. So let's talk about uh, Cassius Clay and sort of the evolution of Cassius Clay into Muhammad Ali. Uh, You really have a poignant uh, part in the book where you talk about his relationship with Malcolm X and the way in which that relationship really helped to form him uh, in critical ways uh, but also the evolution of that relationship when it came time to discard that relationship. In a lot of ways, the young Muhammad Ali, um, there was no looking back. As an older person, he said he regretted it. But at the time, you don't necessarily see that. So let's talk about that 
evolution of Cassius Clay into Muhammad Ali. You know, man, you and I could spend a whole hour just talking about that easily. Um, and I'm fascinated by this because without the Nation of Islam, without Malcolm X, there is no Muhammad Ali. He becomes the man he becomes because of these beliefs that he discovers. And if you want to go all the way back to Cassius Clay, you know, he's Cassius Marcellus Clay Jr., uh, named for uh, a, a white slave owner. And his father is a, is a fierce race man. His father is a Garveyite. His father believes that the black man is never going to get a fair shake in this country and that there's no point in, in even hoping for it. And he raises young Cassius Jr. to believe these things, to believe that because of the color his, of his skin, he will never be accepted as an American. So when people start protesting, when the civil rights movement starts starts to even just take its uh, earliest shape. You know, Cassius Clay is the same age as, as Emmett Till, and, and he remembers you know, all his life what happened to Emmett Till, but he doesn't show much interest in getting involved in the civil rights movement as a kid. He's, he's going to school right after Brown versus Board of Education has passed, and of course the schools in, in Louisville are not integrating um, and won't for a long time. But it's not until he hears Elijah Muhammad and hears Malcolm X that something lights a, lights a flame in him. So now he hears something that really speaks to him because it's not about integration. It's not about asking the white man for anything. You know, the Nation of Islam is not a protest movement. They were building the individual, just like boxing builds the individual. You know, the Nation of Islam was focused on family and community. They were focused on resisting fear. You know, they were arguing that um, fear was the thing that kept the black man down and the black woman down and kept the order, allowed the segregationists to get away with what they were getting away with. And Malcolm and Elijah Muhammad were, were rejecting that. They were saying, we are not going to live in fear. And that really appealed to young Cassius Clay. Um, it thrilled him the first time he heard it. He got a copy of the record that... Um, that Louis Farrakhan, then known as Louis X, recorded, The White Man's Heaven is the Black Man's Hell. And he brought that home from one of his uh, amateur fights in Chicago, and he just played that record until he wore it out and memorized every line of it. And you talk about Cassius Clay's influence on Malcolm too. Discuss uh, Cassius's influence on Malcolm X, because in a lot of ways, we think about 1964, and the fact that Malcolm really takes his first vacation, Malcolm and Betty, and four of their children, uh, the twins would be born posthumously for Malcolm after his assassination. But discuss that time in Miami, the month-long time he's right there with Cassius Clay. And then when Cassius Clay surprisingly wins the heavyweight championship of the world, I thought it's fascinating how they just go around um, New York, the United Nations. There are all these different photo ops. Um, there's the evening where they're with Jim Brown, the NFL running back, and Sam Cooke, the legendary singer, uh, before his assassination. Uh, you know, people like Bill Russell. There's there's so much going on there. And Muhammad Ali says that he fell in love with Malcolm when Malcolm was giving the best to these. Uh, both white journalists and these folks he was debating about civil rights. And he says that publicly. So there really is this huge, um, you know, bromance, this love for each other that you can see visibly. He thinks of Malcolm as his older brother and Malcolm thinks of him as his little brother. So Malcolm, Cassius Clay is only 22. Uh, Malcolm is uh, going to be 39 
that may, but he's 38 years old, uh, discuss that, their, their, their close personal relationship and, and the politics that are imbibed there. Oh my God, it's so complicated. Uh, but you're right; it is a, a it is a brother like relationship. I think that um, you know you have to remember that before the fight in '64, before Ali beats Liston and becomes the heavyweight champion, he's not telling the world that he's a member of the Nation of Islam. He's afraid that if it gets out, he'll lose the shot at the heavyweight title. He'll lose any shot at endorsement deals. His white business managers are begging him to stop hanging around with Malcolm. And Malcolm is, is in a tricky spot, too, because he's been banned from the Nation of Islam. He's been suspended by Elijah Muhammad. And uh, he's, a, he's accusing, uh, in, in large part, mostly because he spoke out after the Kennedy assassination, said the chickens, is the chickens coming home to roost, but also because he knew that Elijah Muhammad was guilty of all of these um, sexual infidelities with his secretaries. And the relationship was exploding between Elijah Muhammad and Malcolm. And Muhammad Ali was kind of trapped in the middle of this. I think, you know, Malcolm really wanted to be a tutor and a friend, but he was also thinking that if Ali won the championship, it would give him more leverage. It would give Malcolm leverage to either get back into the good graces of Elijah Muhammad or to move away and to start his own organization and bring Cassius Clay with him. So all of these balls are in the air, all of this tension, and it's really not clear how it's going to turn out. Uh, if Ali wins the championship, suddenly both he and Malcolm have a lot more leverage. And, and when he wins, they celebrate that night, as you mentioned, in the hotel room with Sam Cooke, Jim Brown. It's just this you know, life-changing moment for everybody. And Ali comes out the next day and really makes one of the most important statements in the history of American sports, you know, one of the great moments in, in 1960s history, he says, I don't have to be, he says to the white, the all white press, I don't have to be what you want me to be. I don't have to say what you want me to say. I'm my own man. I'm free. I'm a member of the nation of Islam and I can do whatever I want to do. And nobody had heard those kind of words before from a black athlete. Now, after his association with Malcolm X, Muhammad Ali, the newly named Muhammad Ali, uh, becomes the Nation of Islam's really biggest drawing power, its biggest um, speaker besides uh, the Honorable Elijah Muhammad. So discuss that relationship uh, with the Nation of Islam and how Muhammad Ali's anti-war stance actually transforms that relationship that he has with the Nation of Islam really permanently, even though he's going to stay within that organization until after Elijah Muhammad's passing. Elijah Muhammad um, is worried that, that Ali might go with Malcolm. So he, he makes a brilliant move. Um, Ali, for about 24 hours, was calling himself Cassius X and um, saying that he was giving up his, you know, his slave name of, of Clay. And then he gets a phone call from Elijah Muhammad saying, no, you're not Cassius X. I have a, a special name for you, a, a greater honor an honor that I give only to the most uh, important members of, of our organization. I'm going to give you a whole new name, and that name will be Muhammad Ali. And in that move, he solidifies his relationship with Ali and really splits him from Malcolm. And Malcolm said in his autobiography that when he heard that on the radio, that, that Ali had, had accepted this name from Elijah Muhammad, he knew that he was in trouble and, you know, of course, was assassinated soon after. And Ali rejected Malcolm and said that 
you know, anyone who, who crosses, anyone who dares to defy Elijah Muhammad does so at their own peril. He, he basically left Malcolm hanging in a way that he would regret years later. Uh, I think, I think that, you know, Ali could have saved Malcolm's life. He could have, um, he could have supplied him with some protection, but he didn't. And as you, as you said, Ali becomes the most important symbol of the nation of Islam. The heavyweight champion is, is a, is a massive worldwide figure, a celebrity, you know, unlike any other, he's, he's bigger than any football player, bigger than any baseball player. Everybody knows him. And for him to align himself with the nation of Islam, which is still at this time considered a, you know, by the, by the FBI considered a terrorist cult. Uh, that's huge. It gives, it gives uh, Elijah Muhammad a, a huge recruiting tool and establishes them as a part of the American culture in a, in a way that they, they could not have been established before. And so let's talk about Muhammad Ali and the refusal of draft induction in 1967. He's three years, basically three years into his heavyweight championship uh, uh, tenure. He's really entering his fourth year because he won in February of 64. He's undefeated. He's dazzling. And then he decides not to step forward when he is called to be inducted uh, in, in, the, in the draft. It's so funny because the person who's trying to induct him tells a journalist that he said Muhammad Ali, and he also said Cassius Clay, just to be sure. Because I think one of the things I'd like to discuss with you is really the racism of white journalists in the era who refused to call him Muhammad Ali. And famously, there's even opponents, Black opponents, who refused to call him Muhammad Ali, and he he, and you recount how he um, punishes them in the ring for that refusal. But I thought that was very, very obviously disrespectful. But let's talk about how Muhammad Ali becomes this really both this countercultural figure, this black power figure. Um, Stokely Carmichael is a friend of Muhammad Ali's. Uh, Martin Luther King Jr. meets with him in Louisville and defends Muhammad Ali's right to refuse the draft. So let's talk about what what that does for him and what that does, how he becomes sort of this unlikely black power spokesperson as a member of an organization that's telling black people not to participate overtly in politics. Certainly Malcolm X had defied those orders from Elijah Muhammad, which led to his ouster and his eventual murder. But how does Muhammad Ali become this symbol this global symbol of defiance against colonialism, war, white supremacy, racism. It's really fascinating because he somehow manages to span all of these groups. You know, the black power leaders like him, the, the integrationists, the, the, the sort of the, uh, the, the middle of the road civil rights activists like him. Only, you know, white America doesn't like him. And let's not forget that, you know, when he changes his name, when he announces that he won't fight in the draft, he becomes the most unpopular man in America, uh, among at least among in white America, I should say, he's he's despised, um, and yet that helps him emerge as kind of this this great symbol of rebellion who who crosses all kinds of lines. He's not just a member of the Nation of Islam, as you said. He's a global figure of rebellion, and when he travels overseas for the first time, he's stunned to see that not only everybody knows him, but everybody loves him because he's seen as somebody who stands up to American imperialism, stands up against the war, stands up for what he believes in, stands up against white power, uh, against white privilege, and just is willing to, to, to be fearless in that. And, and it, it really 
inspires everyone around him, even people who might not agree with him politically. It, you know, there's a great clip of him with with Martin Luther King, where you can just see King cracking up. Like, he he just you know being in Ali's company was was like a drug. People just couldn't get enough of him. He was so much fun to be around, and yet he was so so fearless. And you talk about in your biography of Ali the real toll that anti-war resistance takes. And um, I want us to talk about that in depth because Ali goes broke. Um, he divorces his first wife and marries Belinda, his second wife. When we think about the Nation of Islam, they tend to see him as um, a cash cow. And as his utility diminishes, they actually distance themselves from him And there's a point where Elijah Muhammad actually gives him a one-year ban from the group. So they really treat him distastefully, and you really get to see aspects of the the massive corruption within that group. But you're also very candid about Ali's own um, personal shortcomings in a way that I think the 2004 Michael Mann film would have really benefited from showing the complicated anti-hero that that Muhammad Ali was in his real life. You know, he mistreated people. Uh, He mistreated women. He didn't have time for his children often in those years. And you document that. So I want us to talk about that, that version of Ali before he recovers the heavyweight championship in Zaire in 1974, October 8th. His life is really messy. And it's um, in part because he's, he's, willing to, you know, he sacrifices so much. And it's really important for us to remember, everybody always talks about how Ali gave up three and a half years of his prime as a boxer, as a money earner, uh, because he because he took this stand against Vietnam. But he didn't sacrifice just three and a half years. He was prepared to sacrifice his entire career. He didn't know that he was going to be allowed to box again. There was every reason to believe that his career was over. And he was still willing to make that sacrifice. So you cannot question his his religious sincerity on this. He truly um, embraced the teachings of Elijah Muhammad, even after Elijah Muhammad, you know, suspended him from the Nation of Islam for focusing too much on money and thinking too much about boxing and not his religious values. Ali remained devoted to the man and to the religion, and and it cost him dearly. For three and a half years, he couldn't box. He he could make money only um, really on the margins. You know, he traveled around the country and spoke on college campuses for, for very small sums. You know, who can say what kind of a, you know, turmoil this, this caused for his marriage, for his life, for his relationships. Uh, but he, he did, the one good thing, I think, is that traveling around on the college campuses, he, he became even more radicalized and he inspired a group of, uh, you know, mostly white college students who were, you know, beginning to protest the war on campuses and and we began to see you know you begin to see Ali emerging as a different kind of a hero to to a much broader part of the community to these you know left or left leaning college students who uh, might not have have thought of him as, as as one of their heroes but he he begins to become more of a global figure even during the time that he's that he's not boxing and that to me in, in a way is um, where, where his real heroism uh, becomes clear it's, it, that it's it's established outside the ring, and that's really his you know his his great legacy. Of course, is outside the ring. Talk to me about his relationship with Joe Frazier. They have these three extraordinary fights uh, between nineteen 
um, basically 71 in 1975, and uh, Ali loses uh, the first, um, and then maybe he actually even loses the first two. You would you would know better than me, but certainly wins <laughs> just, the thriller. Just the first thriller. one. He, he won the, the first, first one. one. He lost the first one and, and, and won the next two. The next two. So the thriller in Manila is the one that I remember as a, as a, as a kid, people talking about, tiny, tiny person people talking about. It, it, tell me about um, both those fights, but also the racism. Why, why did Ali call Joe Frazier a gorilla and how was he able to get away with that? Because um, <laughs> when I when I see uh, and that has been recounted in documentaries, your book uh, beautifully recounts it. But I'm always um, put off by that, you know. And Joe Frazier was such in his own way a decent a decent man. He didn't have the same politics, and but he was not some kind of Uncle Tom either. But what what why is Joe Frazier the recipient of being called all these? Not just negative words, but but racist words. Calling him a, der- a gorilla, calling him stupid, calling him ugly. How does he get away with that? Man, it's amazing, and it's so sad. It's one of the things that, in Ali's career that I think you know makes it the hardest to like him. It's really uh, disgusting behavior, and and it wasn't just Fraser actually. Ali picked on his black opponents in a cruel kind of a way, and it makes it so complicated because here's this figure of black pride. Here's the man who you know inspired black power to use his slogan, I am the greatest. Uh, he, here's this guy who uh, is clearly, uh, you know, about uplifting his people. And, and yet he uses the most vicious, racist, white language against his black opponents. And he's much meaner to his black opponents than he is to his white opponents. He calls Joe Frazier, not just Frazier, but some of the other guys he fought, Uncle Tom's. He calls them the white people's champ, that only white people are rooting for you. Um, you know, only Richard Nixon could possibly root for Joe Frazier. You know, he's doing it to try to get under their skins, but he's also doing it in a way that uses just the, the, the most vile insults that, that it does. Is it, is it because he knows this is what's going to hurt them the most, that it's going to, you know, damage their concentration in the ring? And is that acceptable? Is that a good enough reason to, to fall back on this racist language? One of Ali's friends had an interesting theory about it for me. Um, he said he thought it was because Ali was really raised in the middle class. He was not poor the way most boxers were, the way Joe Frazier was. Um, you know, so many boxers came from poverty, came from the ghetto, and mm-hmm. Ali never had that kind of a street cred. And maybe that's why he maybe he was insecure around some of these other black men and felt like he had to diminish them somehow. That's, you know, you're playing a little bit of, you know, pop psychologist there, but it's an interesting theory. For some reason, Ali gave Joe Frazier the worst of it. And and I think it's because Ali was afraid of Frazier. Ali beat him that first mm-hmm. fight. And Ali uh, just didn't match up well with Frazier. Frazier seemed to have his number and and it was it really became bitter and became personal. And, you know, Frazier had been kind to Ali when, when Ali was exiled. Frazier mm-hmm. had, had lent, him, lent him money and offered him a job. It's really, to me, inexcusable the way the way Ali treated him. And now let's talk about his health, because one of the things you spend a lot of time on is the way in which even before the diagnosis of Parkinson's and even before the fights of the late 70s with Leon Spinks and the last terrible fight with Trevor Burbick in 1981, where people saw an obviously diminished Ali, but Dr. Ferdy Pacheco and others knew that very, very early in that comeback, 
he wasn't the same fighter. He hadn't trained the same way, but his health was deteriorating. Like we, we could make an argument from reading your book that all of those fights from the 1970s and the comeback really shouldn't have been fought because he's in such poor health. Yeah, that's absolutely right. I mean, boxing is a brutal game. Boxing, the purpose of boxing is to cause a concussion. The goal is to cause brain damage in your opponent, right? So let's start there. But Ali fights much too long. Ferdy Pacheco said that he began to see signs of brain damage as early as 1971. Ali fought for another 10 years. He took tens of thousands of punches. And as he got a little older, even even when he when he first came back, in 71, after the three and a half year exile, he's slower. And he had gotten by really on, on speed. You know, he didn't take a lot of shots. He didn't suffer a lot of damage in the first part of his career because he was so fast and he was so quick at, a, you know, able to avoid punches. But when he comes back, he's a step slower. And, and when your whole fight is built around speed, you can't afford to lose a step. And now he finds out something great and something terrible. He finds out that he can take a punch. And these, he can just wait until opponents get tired of hitting him. And when they get tired, he can, he can come back and start fighting. And, and that means he fights lots of long bouts where he absorbs a ton of punishment. And by the mid-70s, you can see it. You can hear it. You can see that you know, he doesn't look the same, that his speech is starting to, to slow down. He's slurring his words. And his friends and family express concern. They say, there's something wrong with you. But he just keeps fighting because he, he needs the money. He loves the attention, and like so many, you know, great athletes, they don't know when to stop. And so, let's talk about the the last act of Ali's career after he stops fighting in 1981. How how does he become? Because in the black community, he was always a folk hero. But how does he become the Ali who has Parkinson's but is lighting the Olympic torch in Atlanta '96 and being feted? by Republican and Democratic presidents, especially after he had been persona non grata. And, and there becomes this embrace by white Americans of Ali um, in his old age. And in a way, people like Bill Clinton, when you think about um, President Clinton and Ali's funeral, President Obama, they set up a mythology around Ali uh, that amplifies notions of American exceptionalism in a way that's really fascinating to see and observe. I think it's wrongheaded, but I see what they're doing. How does he become this symbol that sort of knits together the cultural wars in in, in a way that is satisfying almost, not to all sides, but that presents a satisfying narrative, a cohesive narrative? Yeah, it's sad and it's it's frustrating. It's it's similar to what... um, what we are doing with to, to Dr. King, you know, we're, we're, we're whitewashing the story. We're, we're forgetting all of the, um, all the rough parts. We're forgetting the radicalism. And, and what happens to Ali is that he becomes like this Buddha figure, especially when he grows silent, when, when Parkinson mm-hmm. takes his voice away. And all we see is this peaceful man with tremors who, who can no longer speak. We, 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 he becomes all things to all people. And, uh, you know, Stanley Crouch had a great line. He said, "Ali, in the first part of his career, was a, was a grizzly bear. He's he's dangerous. He'll he'll rip your head off. In the second part of his career, in the seventies, he's he's like a circus bear. He's still dangerous, but he's entertaining, and and we like to laugh. 
And then in the third part of his career, after his boxing days are over, he becomes like a teddy bear and we all want to hug him. And we've forgotten how dangerous he really was. But we shouldn't forget how dangerous Ali was. His, his importance, his great legacy is his radicalism. Uh, not We shouldn't remember the guy who, who lit the torch. Um, that should not be our, our, our lasting image of him. So when we think about Ali, I want to have a wider discussion of Ali's relevance to today in terms of 2020 and really the 1960s. I know you're working on a, a biography of, of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And with all the protests that are happening in 2020 in the aftermath of uh, George Floyd's murder by the police uh, and this racial reckoning that we're happening, that we're, we're witnessing unflower. Um, 20 million people out in the streets, uh, almost 5,000 separate demonstrations uh, in the spring uh, and the summer of this year, 2020. How does Ali and his legacy, and in really a larger context of talking about the 1960s and figures like King, how do they help us come to terms with what's going on now and really help us even think about what, what might the future look like for us? when we think about these issues of, of racial justice and equity uh, in American society and around the world, because we've really truly witnessed global protest in London and Oxford and Munich and Berlin and just all around the world, uh, sympathy Black Lives Matter demonstrations where activists are saying they have their own uh, racial problems uh, in these, these places as well. Man, that's a great question. And I'd like to hear your take on it. Um, after I take a shot at it. But, you know, I would say that if you loved Ali, you have to support the protesters in the streets today. You have to recognize that sometimes you just have to get out there without necessarily knowing exactly what you're asking for. You've got to make some noise. You've got to say that it's not acceptable anymore. And you've got to fight the inequalities of society that uh, we're just not going to take it anymore. You know, you can see it with Colin Kaepernick. You know, there's this resistance that to, to the idea of speaking out that somehow people are supposed to be just uh, shut up and dribble. Well, no, we're not going to take that anymore, right? And that's what Ali said, and that's what the, I think the protesters today are saying. We're just we're just not going to take it anymore. We don't necessarily know where this is going to lead us, but you have to start by standing up for what you believe in. And so when you think about a figure uh, like um, Martin Luther King Jr., and I've, I've uh, worked on King as well in the dual biography of King and Malcolm X, what do you think some of the things that are being left out of Dr. King's um, story, especially for this generation? Because we know there's been these Pulitzer Prize winning biographies uh, by, by Branch and Garrow, but those right now are 35 years old, basically. So what is a new interpretive model of somebody who's as significant as King uh, and people like Ali? You've done Ali, you're working on King. What does that do for us in our current discourse, our current moment? Well, I think you uh, laid it out beautifully in your book on King and Malcolm. And what we've forgotten, what we've uh, been brainwashed to forget, what we've been taught since kindergarten to to forget is how radical King was, how very much in common he had with Malcolm X, especially in the latter years of their of their lives. And that when they began, when King began talking about 
the inequalities of capitalism and the, the, the military industrial complex and, and the war in Vietnam, he became incredibly unpopular, perhaps as unpopular as Ali was in the, in the late 60s. And when we forget that, we forget just how fearless they were and how much risk they were taking on. You know, it's, it's easy to talk about I have a dream and content of our character, but it's a lot harder to reckon with the radicalism. But the radicalism is, is what we need to be talking about today, in my opinion. I, I'd, I'd like to hear your side. Yeah, no, I think you're exactly, exactly right. And I think it's so interesting that this time period is making us uh, recall the 1960s and trying to figure out these movements and these icons in, in new and different ways. I, I want to ask you about your method, Jonathan. Like, what is your method of uh, setting out to write these biographies? The you know these are huge biographies. The biography of uh, Ali clocks in at over six hundred pages. <laughs> um, and <laughs> and very, don't scare very, people very... away from it, though. Okay. No, no, it's 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 beautifully written. But what is your method? I know you do interviews. Did you get a chance to interview Muhammad Ali for this? Uh, yeah, you interviewed family members. Like, what is your methodology? Well, I always begin uh, by reading, of course, but I'm also hurrying to interview because when you're writing history, as you know, the older folks are, are really valuable interviews and, and some of them will pass away before you even finish the book. So I began by interviewing as many of the of the people who knew Ali, who were close to him as I could. And, and I spent you know, four years working on this book. So I was able to really get to know his, his wives and his friends and his business associates. And I did get to meet Ali, but he wasn't able to do interviews anymore. So um, that was one of my big um, regrets that I, I didn't get to him sooner, but he really hadn't done an interview in, in more than a decade by the time I began the project. And I'm doing the same thing now with King. I'm, I'm reading, I'm finding new archival materials. I found some really incredible um, new archival materials that you and I have talked about already. But I'm also interviewing Andrew Young. I was able to interview John Lewis uh, last mm. year. I've interviewed, you know, Harry Belafonte and, and Bernard, Dr. Bernard Lafayette, and then dozens and dozens of people who, you know, maybe uh, people haven't heard of, you know, and, and people who just knew King personally. His barber from Montgomery um, is a lovely guy who I've visited a few times now. So, I, I like to I, I'll do interviews. I'm an old journalist, and I, I still like to meet people and look them in the eye and hear their stories. But combining that with the archival materials, a lot of which were not available to you know, Taylor Branch and David Garrow because they just um, hadn't been archived yet. The personal papers of Lawrence Dunbar Reddick, who was one of King's closest friends and associates, mm-hmm. beginning all the way back in Montgomery. And he was a librarian and an archivist and a writer who kept every scrap of paper. That to me is, you know, I, you could hear how excited I get talking about stuff like that, that I've, that I've been able to have access to that um, wasn't available to the last generation of writers. Now, when you think about the 1960s and the period that we're in now, what do you think the echoes are and what do you think is different? Because we've been comparing 19, uh, 2020 to 1968. Uh, I thought that that was apt, but 1963 is also a, a comparable year in, in many ways, not as amplified as 2020 with the pandemic and as many people out in the streets. But what aspects of 2020 do you think, based on the research you've done on both Ali and King, does this year echo, if any at all? Well, there's definitely some echoes, but there are also some huge differences. You know, the the echo is that people were angry enough 
to take action and to and to overcome their fear, to risk personal harm, to risk arrest, to stand up for what they believed in. That's one of the biggest things that um, you know I think Dr. King was able to inspire that sense of fearlessness because the segregationists in the South had done so much damage, had done so much harm over the years. They were controlling with fear, and people like like Muhammad Ali and Martin Luther King Jr. were able to show that we didn't have to succumb to that fear. And that's that's happening again today. You see it on the streets. The difference, I, I'm afraid, is that you, you don't see the same um, local media coverage. You don't see it happening in small towns. Um, you don't have the reporters there anymore. I mean, the media was a big part of why this was able to work in the 60s uh, because the Northern media started going South for the first time and sending reporters to places that they'd never been before. And the local media was strong enough. Even some of the, 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 you know, the, the, the white media in these small towns like Montgomery were awakened to this, to this drama. And, and I think that uh, it, it's hard to know whether you can see the same kind of grassroots work succeeding today in this environment. I'm not sure. I, I mean, I certainly hope so, but I, I'd love to know what you think about that. Yeah, I think that the the echoes are there. I think speaking truth to power, which King and Ali in his own way did so, so effectively, are one of the through lines that bind both eras. And also the fact that protest and politics are really inextricably linked. You need both. You can't have one without the other. Kaepernick is a great example of that. Uh, when the rapper Jay-Z was saying, rapper and mogul Jay-Z was saying, we need to stop protesting. And he made his deal with the NFL. As we've seen, just because of the protest, the NFL has said Black Lives Matter has um, vowed to contribute $250 million over 10 years to some social justice causes. So you you only get progress when there's there's great mobilization. And I think Dr. King understood that. And I think sometimes we lose that. And when we find that again, you get these errors of great, of great progress. My final question, Jonathan, for you is, um, as a journalist and as a really a historian of this time period, what do you think, you, you know, you're working on a big bio of King now, but why do you think it's so important for younger readers uh, to have these new interpretive histories of this period? You know, why, why is it so important that each generation, because I know you're doing a ton of interviews, you've uncovered more archives, and in a way you did that with uh, the Ali book, but why is it so, so important to, for us to produce these new histories that become relevant to this new generation? Yeah, I think there's a real danger with our heroes when we turn them into saints, when we turn them into these almost mythological figures. If you can't relate to them, you can't imitate them. And you can't expect people to make the sacrifices to really do the work to get out there in the streets and do the work if you think of these people as as something greater than human. I, I think it's really important to you know, sort of scrape off the barnacles of history to remind people that Dr. King was a real person, that he had a great sense of humor, that he was, you know, only five foot seven, that he, he had trouble sleeping at night, that he, that, he, that he couldn't shave because his skin was too sensitive, that he, he did not have a perfect marriage. Let's view him as a real person so that we can relate to that story. Same thing with Muhammad Ali. Let's not mythologize these these people. Let's make them real heroes by acknowledging that they had real lives and that they had real flaws. And that means that that we can all aspire to be you know heroes in our own way. All right. We'll end it on that optimistic note, scraping <laughs> the barnacles off of history so 
we can have uh, we can aspire to be like these these real heroes who had real who had real lives and who've impacted our own present um, in such indelible ways. Uh, we've been having a great conversation with Jonathan Igg about Muhammad Ali, Martin Luther King Jr., the 1960s, and the way and it connects with our current racial reckoning. Jonathan Igg is the author of four critically acclaimed books. The latest is Ali, A Life, which is really a brilliant biography of Muhammad Ali that I encourage everyone to check out. Um, and he's working with Ken Burns to develop a documentary on Muhammad Ali. And he's working right now on a uh, massive new biography of Martin Luther King Jr. that will be really an up-to-date, up-to-minute, cutting-edge biography for this generation, a new interpretation of Martin Luther King Jr. So Jonathan, I thank you for joining us. It's been my honor. Thanks for having me. I always enjoy talking to you. Thanks for listening to this episode, and you can check out related content on Twitter at Peniel Joseph. That's P-E-N-I-E-L-J-O-S-E-P-H. And our website, csrd.lbj.utexas.edu. And the Center for Study of Race and Democracy is on Facebook as well. This podcast was recorded at the Liberal Arts Development Studio at the College of Liberal Arts at the University of Texas at Austin. Thank you. Thank you.